Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the, uh, the Native Hawaiian Bill, the, the so-called Akaka Bill that's pending before Congress. But before we get to the program, let me just make a couple of quick housekeeping notes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to, to point out to everybody the, the Cato Handbook on Policy. Uh, this is a publication that we produce every so often. Uh, I think we're at four years right now, four-year intervals of publication. And it provides, uh, it's intended to provide Capitol Hill uh, staffers, members of Congress, a good overview from a libertarian perspective of virtually all the, the, the issues that will be dealt with in Congress, everything from, from foreign policy to, to free trade to the entitlement crisis and uh, uh, social policy and everything in between. Uh, we do provide this free of charge to, to Capitol Hill staff. Um, so if you're interested in a copy and you don't have one currently, please let me know or, or let one of uh, my colleagues, like Kurt Couchman, sitting right there know. We'll be happy to get you one. Additionally, we, uh, we do something at Cato we call Cato Today, which is a daily email newsletter. I, I hope you all uh, sign up to, to receive. Uh, provide you with, with a real quick snapshot of what's going on at Cato on a daily basis. New op-eds, new policy papers, highlights from our blog, and of course keeps you posted on events like today's event so you don't, uh, you don't miss any events on either on Capitol Hill or, or the events that we have at our offices uh, on Massachusetts Avenue. Well, I don't think I need to get very much into, uh, into the details of the bill. I'll leave that to our excellent panel, but uh, as we all know, the, uh, the Akaka bill is, uh, is seeing some attention in Congress. It's, it already passed the House uh, late last year, and uh, it is expected to, to move in the Senate sometime shortly. We're not sure exactly when. At least I'm not sure exactly when. Probably somebody does. But uh, it's expected to move shortly, and of course it's, it's facing a, a, a looming veto threat, according to, to the President and his staff. So certainly a contentious issue, and, and one we feel is, is worthy of discussion and, and debate. And uh, I think we've put together an excellent panel and, uh, uh, to explore the, the nuances of this particular piece of legislation. With that, I'll go ahead and introduce our first speaker today, uh, who is a, his name is Jared Krishel. Uh, if I mangle your name, please feel free to correct me. I apologize. Uh, is, Jared is a senior fellow with the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii, which is a think tank uh, out in Hawaii. Um, he specializes in Hawaiian history and culture. He's a Hawaiian native, having been born and raised there. Uh, he's an expert on uh, the, ninth, the, I'm sorry, the 1894 Morgan Report, as well as the Native Hawaiian Study Commission Report of 1984. Um, he has testified uh, on Hawaiian history and its application to the Akaka Bill before the United States Civil Rights Commission and uh, also at the annual convention of the Citizens' Equal Rights Alliance. Jerry? Aloha and mahalo to all of you for coming to listen to this talk. Um, today I'm going to be talking a little bit about Hawaiian history uh, and its application to the Akaka Bill. Uh, I want to start off with a quote. Mark Twain once said that a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. So today we lace up our boots. Now. There are four primary things that the Akaka Bill rests upon insofar as what they want you to believe. One, they want you to believe that the Kingdom of Hawaii was exclusively Native Hawaiian. Two, they want you to believe that American missionaries deprived the Native Hawaiians of their religion and their language. Three, they want you to believe that the United States Marines overthrew Queen Liliuokalani in 1893. And four, they want you to believe the Native Hawaiians are isolated, distinct, and separate from all other Hawaiians. 
There are some things they don't want you to know. One of the things they don't want you to know about is the 1983 Native Hawaiian Study Commission report, which was commissioned during President Carter's administration, but completed during Reagan's first term. And this Native Hawaiian Study Commission report found that there was no basis at all for reparations. In 1971, the Alaska Native Claim Settlement Act gave millions of acres, billions of dollars to Alaskan natives. And this planted the seed of an idea that perhaps people with Native Hawaiian in their name could get the same thing. Now, the Native Hawaiian City Commission report was a disappointment to many island politicians, including Daniel Inohe, who said that if the Native Hawaiian City Commission didn't present a strong case for reparations for Native Islanders, that he would ask Congress to file the panel's findings and initiate a new study. So he was willing to keep counting votes until he won, no matter what the cost. Furthermore, in 1993, PL 103-150, the apology resolution was passed to undermine the conclusions of this congressional investigation. Daniel Akaka said that he wanted to neutralize the 1983 Native Hawaiian Study Commission Majority Report conclusion that the U.S. government was not liable for the loss of sovereignty or lands of the Hawaiian people in the 1893 overthrow. So what's the truth? The truth is the Native Hawaiian kingdom, the Kingdom of Hawaii, was multiracial from its inception. It was, it was created, the, the islands were unified for the first time with the help of King Kamehameha the Great, Native Hawaiian, Don Francisco Marin, Spaniard, British ex-sailor, ex-British sailor John Young, who was later King Kamehameha's son-in-law, you know, these people formed a coalition that unified the islands. It was never the work of a single race, nor was it ever a work exclusively for one race. Regarding the missionaries taking away the religion and language, it was actually the year before any missionaries arrived that the ancient Kapu religion was overthrown by Queen Ka'ahumanu. In fact, when the missionaries landed in 1820, they thought it was divine grace that the native religion had already been eliminated before they came. And Queen Ka'ahumanu, after a year of probation for these missionaries, embraced them with open arms and turned the Hawaiian kingdom into a Christian nation. It was also the missionaries that helped preserve the Hawaiian language, developing an alphabet for them, which has helped us preserve the language today for people to learn it, as well as save many rituals and place names and chants that otherwise would have been lost to history. The truth is, the Hawaiian Revolution of 1893 was an internal affair. There were 162 U.S. peacekeepers landed from the USS Boston during the Revolution. These U.S. forces did not fire a single shot. These U.S. forces did not point their weapons at anybody during the Revolution. These U.S. forces did not occupy any buildings during the Revolution, and yet they are blamed despite being completely neutral. The truth is, Native Hawaiians are completely integrated into the society of Hawaii. Most Native Hawaiians aren't mostly Native Hawaiian. The only blood quantum study ever done showed in 1984 that over 61% of people with Native Hawaiian ancestry were less than 50% Native Hawaiian by blood. Now, in Hawaii, we have an interracial marriage rate of over 50%, and in 
This was 24 years ago, and certainly that number has, has increased over time. Now, this is not to say that there aren't ugly truths. When Captain Cook arrived in 1778, he brought Western diseases that decimated the native Hawaiian population. It went from over 300,000 at first contact to less than 41,000 in 1890. Now, on the other hand, since annexation, the Hawaiian population has blossomed to over 400,000 today across the United States of America. Another ugly truth is that Christian missionaries were often very, took a very dim view of Hawaiian cultural practices such as hula. They considered it immoral and they actively suppressed it. In fact, even Christian native Hawaiians, such as Bernice Pauahi Bishop, who founded the famous Kamehameha schools you may have heard of, was very staunch in her support for Western ideals and values and very much against hula and native Hawaiian language instruction. However, today the hula and native Hawaiian language are enjoyed, have enjoyed a renaissance among all races in Hawaii. The last ugly truth that I want to share with you is that Native Hawaiian victimhood activists have had millions of dollars to promote their twisting of history and the pursuit of race-based privileges under the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, a state agency which uses revenue from public lands which belong to the entire public of the state of Hawaii. Over $2 million to date has been spent lobbying for the Akaka Bill in an attempt to protect their race-based institutions. Now, Native Hawaiian victimhood activists have very strong support from very influential politicians, including those who claim that they are for one America when they are stumping for the presidential nomination. The Akaka Bill, on the other hand, will explicitly create a race-based government where none has ever existed. So the bottom line, Hawaii is a place, not a race, and the Akaka Bill promises us apartheid. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, our next speaker is Ilya Shapiro of the Cato Institute. He is a uh, senior fellow in constitutional studies as well as editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Prior to joining the Cato Institute, he was a special assistant and advisor to the multinational force uh, in Iraq on the rule of law issues. Uh, as, and he's also practiced international, political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs. Uh, Ilya holds degrees from Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School. Um, he is also an adjunct professor at the George Washington University School of Law. Clear. Thanks, Brandon. Um, so my, uh, my, my billet is to uh, talk about uh, the law, of course, here. And I guess I'll start, well, before I start, let me just say that uh, you know, this might look like a one-sided panel. We did reach out to uh, the office of Senator Akaka, uh, which didn't even return our phone calls. So you know, we wanted to present the other side by their best uh, spokesman, but we're not able to do that. Um, so first of all, uh, the Akaka bill arose as a reaction to a 2000 Supreme Court case called Rice versus Cayetano, in which the Supreme Court upheld a challenge to the race-based voting rules relating to the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, which Jerry mentioned. The, the OHA 
administers funds and otherwise controls uh, programming relating to Native Hawaiian issues. It's an, an agency created in uh, 1978. So based on the 15th Amendment, which says that uh, voting can't be restricted based on race or color, the Supreme Court struck down uh, the, the regulations uh, uh, relating to voting for trustees of the OHA. In response to that, Senator Akaka, every year since that case has introduced, or every Congress has introduced a new bill, uh, essentially along the same lines. The, the, the language of, of the Akaka bill hasn't changed from its earliest inceptions to what we're dealing with now. Um, a, a subsequent development uh, came in 2006 when the uh, Ninth Circuit uh, considered a case involving a challenge to race-based admissions at the Kamehameha schools, which are uh, special schools set up uh, by a trust uh, that probably uh, one of the other panelists, probably uh, Andy, will, will talk about the significance of the Bishop Trust and the Kamehameha schools. In any event, the, the Ninth Circuit originally uh, threw out the, the race-based preferences for those schools, and then when they considered it as a whole court on banc in a narrow 8-7 decision, uh, they upheld those preferences. Uh, the, the losing party challenged that, filed a petition for review in the Supreme Court, uh, but settled. The, ultimately, the, uh, the trustees of the Bishop Trust settled with them for, I think, $7 million rather than having the Supreme Court throw out the Kamehameha School regime altogether. Now, so this is kind of the legal court cases underlying uh, the, the Akaka bill. What the actual text does is create a new sovereign, uh, and it would have Congress create a new sovereign outside the constitutional framework. Now think about that. We in the United States are a country governed by the Constitution, and this bill would have our government, as designed and set forth and duly ratified in the Constitution, creating a wholly new government, a wholly new sovereign out of whole cloth. Whatever that is, it's it's not constitutional. The, the Congress cannot do that. Um, moreover, to the extent that there are parallels to Indian law, and a lot of the supporters of the Akaka Bill say, say that, well, this is no different. Native Hawaiians are just like American Indians. To the extent that there are parallels there, uh, we have to recognize that Indian law is a unique historical compromise that recognized pre-constitutional realities. So when the Constitution was formed, we had to deal with the fact that there were Indian nations, tribes, um, that had to be dealt with somehow, and thereby these certain tribes, and the definitions of which I will get into shortly, are exempt from the First, Fifth, and Fourteenth Amendments. Uh, you can't sue under equal protection, uh, the Equal Protection Clause uh, of the Constitution of the Fourteenth Amendment uh, if you're dealing uh, with Indian tribes. It's a very controversial thing. Um, and in uh, 1913, by the way, the Supreme Court said that in the case of Sandoval versus the United States, that Congress cannot create new Indian tribes. Uh, Indian tribes are, there's it's a specific statutory def definition. These are nations that existed when the Constitution was written and ratified that are geographically separate and culturally distinct communities that have a long and established history of self-rule, continuous and long history of self-rule. As Jerry went into, as I'm sure Andy will mention, uh, Hawaii is the most integrated society in America, and there is no way that native or any other type of definition of, of Hawaiians can qualify in that 
type of constitutional framework. Um, the definition of Native Hawaiian uh, focuses on race to the exclusion of all other potentially relevant factors uh, that are included when we talk about Indian tribes. For example, there's no requirement for residency in Hawaii, uh, and approximately 20%, perhaps upwards of that, of those that would qualify do not live in Hawaii. Um, there's no requirement for any quantum of indigenous blood, so it's essentially a one-drop rule. Uh, no requirement for any past participation or adoption of Hawaiian culture or language, or indeed documented interest in Hawaiian political affairs. Uh, all of these characteristics, which are essential to the recognition of traditional Indian tribes, along with the uh, geographically distinct and you know, culturally distinct and long continuous history of self-government, are absent in the definition of, of Native Hawaiian. So the definition itself is of questionable constitutional merit. Uh, and now, don't get confused with the fact that um, Indian tribes have certain rules to determine their own membership. Once these Indian tribes exist lawfully, yes, they are exempt from, as I said, these certain parts of the Constitution and can determine, based on certain characteristics, their own membership because they're sovereign entities. But because Congress cannot create new sovereigns out of whole cloth, that analysis is inapplicable to uh, the case of Native Hawaiians as defined by the Akaka Bill. Um, the Akaka Bill, even if the creation of a new sovereign were uh, constitutionally permissible, uh, the remaining provisions of the Akaka Bill, how it treats uh, Native Hawaiians, uh, which, by the way, um, just an interesting statistic that less than 10% of quote unquote Native Hawaiians have more than 50%. Uh, Native Hawaiian blood. So it's just, you're, you're, you're creating these, these, these ethnic and race-based rules that, um, that bifurcate and balkanize the most unified uh, society in, in America. So even if these, this new sovereignty were, were legal, um, these provisions that deal with economic and political preferences and land-grant rights and so forth would be facially disallowed by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments prescription against state action that treats people differently on the basis of race, race and ethnicity. The Supreme Court has found in Rice v. Cayetano and in other cases that Native Hawaiians are an ethnic group and therefore you can't discriminate based on, uh, because you can't discriminate based on membership in an ethnic group, uh, the Akaka Bill's operative provisions are unconstitutional. Um, I think that pretty much covers the, cost of the basic constitutional and legal issues. I mentioned some of the demographics. There's also problems in terms of creating a legal and constitutional precedent in carving out this type of uh, Native Hawaiian government. Um, uh, we, we hear from time to time activists uh, wanting to promote Mexican-American sovereignty over Azatlan in the Southwest. Uh, those people, of course, pre-existed uh, they were there. They were an actual, you know, are much closer to the definition of an Indian tribe than, than Native Hawaiians. Cajuns in Louisiana, who of course were there when, during the time of the Louisiana Purchase, when, when their areas became part of the United States. Uh, the Pennsylvania Amish, uh, and indeed Orthodox Jews. All of those have a much greater history and tradition and uh, unified uh, life and ethnicity than... Uh, um, than, than the people who would be qualifying as Native Hawaiians. It just creates a terrible, 
uh, race-based legal precedent. Uh, one example of that, or another proof of that, is that in the House vote, uh, the final vote was 261 to 153, uh, overwhelmingly uh, Democratic for, although 37, I believe, Republican congressmen voted for it as well. There was one Democratic congressman that voted against the Akaka Bill in the House, and that was Maxine, Maxine Waters, who, as we all know, is not among the conservative Democrats, but indeed one of the more left-leaning ones. And she voted for it uh, precisely to cre create this type of precedent such that in the future perhaps African Americans could get some sort of uh, sovereign control over various types of uh, political uh, goodies. So I will uh, leave it there. I'm happy to answer questions later, and uh, we'll go to our next speaker. Thanks a lot, Ilya. Um, before we get started with the next speaker, if, if there are people in the back, there are a couple of seats up front here if, if people want to grab them as I introduce our next speaker. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Elaine Willman. Uh, she is the village administrator for Hobart, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Green Bay. Um, she, is, uh, she was previously the national chair of Citizens Equal Rights, uh, I'm sorry, of the Citizens Equal Rights Alliance from 2002 to 2008. Uh, she is author of uh, Going to Places, which is a book that explores, I'm sorry, Going to Pieces. Sorry about that. Uh, Going to Pieces, which explores uh, tribal issues uh, as well as federal government policies. Um, uh, if you're not familiar with, with Hobart, uh, Wisconsin, as, as I was not, uh, it is located actually within the boundaries of the Oneida tribe. So she uh, has a unique position of evaluating the interaction of, uh, of the village that, that she lives in and works for and, uh, and the, the tribal community and tribal government. And with that, I'll turn things over to, uh, to Lane Wilman. Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. And, uh, Thank you to the Cato Institute for hosting this occasion and for um, inviting me to share. Um, a little housekeeping thing. I have seven or eight minutes to just give you everything I know about humongously important things. And so that you know that's not going to happen. So I brought some handouts, uh, three pages that I encourage you to take on your way out. And if there are extras, I pray that the Cato Institute will pass them among their staff. Because if you find me only interesting, I have failed. You have to find me upsetting, because when I'm upset, I tend to look into things. I tend to think, what's going on here? And that's what got me into the subject of federal Indian policy, which ultimately got me into the Akaka Bill, which has carried me forward into studying the Otslan movement, and which has given me a physical sense that in this 50 United States, that I, this country that I love, we have a movement. We have a movement that is dismantling, as my book says, the United States. And Brandon was right in a certain way. The book is called Going to Pieces. He called it Going to Places. I went to 17 Indian reservations with a videographer. I traveled from Washington State to New York across one reservation after another. And I must tell you, I am Cherokee. My mother and grandmother were enrolled. My husband is Shoshone and a direct descendant of Sacagawea's uh, sister's boy, Basil. Uh, Basil was the four-year-old boy that Sacagawea adopted. So what I am speaking of has nothing to do with my affection and, and our, all of our affection and respect for culture, American Indian culture, Native Hawaiian culture. In order to hear me at all, we have to be able to separate that respect for all cultures from government decision-making. 
That's the first piece. We have to understand that government is not culture and culture is not government. And so when I can speak about government decisions and not be called a racist, that is very helpful. And I'm going to speak about government decisions and you can call me a racist. And I'm going to keep speaking about these government decisions. And then when you say, oh, but it's a done deal, I'm going to be upset and look around and see how done it is and how do I get it undone. Because we have some done deals that have spread across this country. We have 340 mega casinos, tax exempt, plunked down in local government communities, one near my town, just sucking in all the disposable income into this tax exempt entity. And the money is being used to buy land and spread the base of that casino. And the land falls out of the property tax base. And so the non-tribal stores start closing. The taxes, the local taxes go up. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Here's where we connect some dots. Federal Indian policy, or specifically Title 25, and Indian common law, some of which Ilya has mentioned, uh, and executive orders. Federal Indian policy is a private conversation between very few tribal leaders and administrators in Congress. Not even tribal members have a clue unless their leaders tell them. So federal Indian policy is this private conversation. So when one of these government decisions affects your community, your elected officials, such as me, as I was in Washington State, or your public officials, such as me as an administrator in, in Hobart, Wisconsin, we begin clueless. We don't know this thing called federal Indian policy, and when we start looking around, it's, uh, oh, well, you're a racist. And when we start looking around some more, it's, well, it's a done deal. This is tribal policy. Well, they're immune, you know. You can't sue them. This is what's coming to Hawaii. And then multiply this times 562 separate sovereigns that Ilya is telling you about. Five, just think of that burden on 50 states. 562 separate sovereigns in 50 states. There are 11 in Wisconsin, 29 in Washington State. Uh, we have separate sovereigns co-located in counties in, in, in these states. And now Congress, as of 1988, gave these separate sovereigns their own monopoly. One of the questions I would ask Ilya and Cato is, how did Congress grant a monopoly and get past the Sherman Antitrust Act or the Taft-Hartley Act? But they did. They sure did. And now we have these 562 separate sovereigns that are not only a government, they're profit centers. And not only are they profit centers, they're tax exempt. And not only can you not do anything about it, you can't sue them. All that money is not even helping their members. They won't, they seldom even build a home for most of the reservations. We have families on waiting lists for housing when their casinos are making you know, 30, 40 million a year. There are exceptions to that in the very, very greedy tribes where they have disenrolled great numbers of their tribal members so they don't have to share the wealth. And some tribal members are getting 30,000 a month. Some are getting more than that in California tribes. Many hundred thousands a year just for breathing just because they're a separate race-based sovereign also granted a congressional monopoly profit center that is tax-exempt, 
that is taking out the disposable income from the main marketplace and that is buying up land and taking that out of the property base of your local counties and cities. And so everybody's losing. One of the handouts there is called Dual and Dueling Economies. In Hobart, here's how it works. I'm the village administrator there. We are um, 33 square miles, big high-end bedroom community where a lot of the Packer coaches and players live, just outside of Green Bay, but we're on the Oneida Indian Reservation. Big casino across from the airport and another one somewhere else. The village of Hobart has 15 paid employees full-time. 15 full paid employees for 33 square miles. That's our municipal government. We have four public works employees who lived in the snow plows for 82 inches of snow this year for 32 square mi 33 square miles. We have 33 square miles, 15 employees, and a $3.7 million budget. Our neighbor, the Oneida Tribe of Indians, has um, an annual operating budget of $527 million and that doesn't count their investments in the Marriott Hotels here in D.C. or the one out in Sacramento or their Seven Generations Corporation, which has other profit centers, all of which are tax-exempt. And so the village, the, the, the village of Hobart is the local general purpose government. Here's another thing to know. Tribal governments are special purpose governments. They are congressionally recognized with a special purpose to allow tribal communities to govern themselves and their lands any way they want to. And then they're shielded with the immunity. They have a duty only to their lands and their people. Local general, your town, my town, our counties, we are state subdivisions under the Constitution. We are the general purpose government with the duty to the common welfare. That's our duty. So in Hobart, that's, we gotta do that duty with $3.7 million every year and 15 employees. We lost 32% of our land base in the last few years because the casino money from the tribe is grabbing the land, buying the land back. We had the, uh, our uh, dear Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, Secretary Carl Artman, whose uh, last day is Friday. He was the legal counsel of the United tribe, United tribe of Indians. He came into our elected officials a few years ago and said, prepare to become extinct. Now think about this. Here's a private, separate government with a duty only to its people and its land, and it's coming into a municipal general purpose government saying, prepare to become extinct. That was Mr. Artman. So uh, the village, if having lost that substantial property tax, had to do something alternative. Tried to do a business park, spent $5 million putting in a road and infrastructure. In the stealth of the night, the tribe bought all the land in the business park. The city, the village was just out the $5 million. The village invested another $6 million in, in uh, acreage to build a commercial center along the state highway. The tribe spent 15 times the market value to buy a 60-foot unbuildable L-shaped strip around that 300 acres the village bought to prevent it from bringing its infrastructure in. You know? So this is a municipal government under siege. And let me tell you, there are hundreds of Hobarts across this country. And this is the future of Hawaii if the Akaka Bill even gets close. And so I really hope I have upset you. Because this private conversation between federal government and tribal governments is affecting each of us right where we live. And it must affect all of us 
when it's in such heavy numbers as 562, and when the Akaka Bill sets the precedent to bring it on with the La Raza and the Yatslan movement for the seven southwestern states. And as Ilya or somebody said, black reparations, and we're just going to balkanize into race-based communities that are also very special. What happened to this country that is supposed to be so special? Thank you. Thank you, Elaine. Um, our final speaker today is Anderson Blum. He's the president of the Research Institute for Hawaii, uh, which is a uh, 501c3. It's a research organization, a think tank, uh, that studies the dissemination and accurate representation of Hawaiian American history. Uh, he also serves as the president of Hawaiian Values U.S., which is an uh, advocacy organization uh, which supports the, the true Hawaiian values of aloha and the protection of everyone's constitutional rights. And uh, as you might gather, he spends a lot of time flying between uh, Hawaii and Washington, so I believe he racks up quite a few frequent flyer miles in the process. Thank you. Actually, I have enough frequent flyer miles to go to the moon at this point, and I'm thinking about it. How many of you all been, have ever been to Hawaii? Okay. So you know that if you're if there's an entertainer up here or you get on a tour bus or whatever, they go, aloha. And you all are supposed to go, aloha. Because aloha means hello, I love you, and goodbye. After the passage of the Akaka Bill, it will only mean goodbye. Because you will not be welcome anymore. The Akaka Bill is set up to, pr to create what the Office of Hawaiian Affairs calls a sovereign dependent nation. Sovereign means we do what we want. Dependent means you pay for it. In this instance, for instance, even though theoretically the bill says it's against it, it means gambling in Hawaii, which has been fervently worked against. Current status of the Akaka bill, Ilya mentioned it passed the House 261 to 153. If it came up for a vote in the Senate right now, it would probably pass by two votes. We've been fortunate in that several people in the Senate have worked very hard to keep it from coming up, and we've been working very hard to see that people get informed about it. There are uh, a list of senators who are potential switchers on this in deference to Cato's 501c3 status and, frankly, our 501c3 status. I'm speaking now from a 501c4 hat. I should have brought two hats. So I could switch them back and forth. I have some handouts here that define this a little bit better for anyone who's interested. President Bush, of course, has said he will veto the bill. The Department of Justice has told him it's unconstitutional. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights has come out very firmly and strongly against the bill. But Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton have both said they will sign the bill. So the threat is very imminent. We are hoping it comes up for a vote now, and we're hoping to reach out and educate the 11 senators who potentially can be moved on this. It has created a lot of problems. Hawaii is the most racially diverse, harmonious place on earth. My wife is sitting out here. She's a local girl born and raised on Kauai. Our children are, you know, they have the Hawaiian background, they're Filipino, Chinese, Spanish, Norwegian, American Indian, English, Welsh, German. Okay. They're absolutely typical Hawaiians. For the first time, not the first time, but for the first time in a long time, we have racial violence in Hawaii. Caucasian boy was shot for taking pictures on a local beach. 
a Caucasian girl in high school had her head bashed against the wall by a, local, a Hawaiian girl because she was, quote, Haole. Haole is mistakenly is said to be white. Haole means without breath or foreigner. It does not actually mean white. But because she was a effing Haole, she had her head bashed against the wall, had to go to the hospital. Warrant officer and her husband had a minor fender bender in a parking lot with a guy, a Hawaiian man and his son in their new pickup truck, and they got out and put them in intensive care while a crowd stood around yelling racial epithets. Now, this is not Hawaii. You've been there, but this is where Hawaii is going because of the racial separatism of the Akaka Bill. And because of the massive land grab, Representative Neil Abercrombie defines the Akaka Bill as, this is very simple, it's about power and money and the control of it. He also informed the U.S. Senate that we don't, I don't know what you have against Hawaiians and they've never done anything to you and I don't know why you're bringing up all this constitutional nonsense when you don't care most of the time. This is a classic Hawaiian politician. But, and I'm being kind because we just had our rhino fest. But we are having racial problems for the first time. We have, in addition to the issues up here, serious domestic problems as a result of this. The state Supreme Court ruled 15 months ago that all water that is not catchment water, meaning you don't get in a pail when it falls from the sky, is subject to native fishing and cultural gathering rights. The Office of Hawaiian Affairs, who expects to be the new government of the native Hawaiian government the Akaka Bill creates, says, has immediately claimed that this gives that government the right to monitor, maintain, tax, or limit all water. You can't take a shower, flush a toilet, drink, pick a aspirin, and you'll need a lot of aspirin, without permission or paying a tax to the native Hawaiian government. Current legislation in the Hawaii legislature does the same thing for bioprospecting, which means you won't be able to catch it, grow it, pick it off the mango tree in your yard, cut your yard, mow your lawn without paying a tax, getting permission, God forbid you should want to build a new house or a hotel, which would, might require water, or bioprospecting. The OHA has already announced this year that they will hold a convention and form a constitution for the new Hawaiian government, whether or not the Akaka Bill passes. This is a state agency funded with state tax money that is advocating a secessionist activity. They're going to hold a constitutional convention, form their own government with tax dollars. Um, the Iolani Palace, which is the only palace on United States soil, was invaded and seized momentarily, well, longer than momentarily, by one of the over 20 different sovereignty groups that maintain they are the true kingdom of Hawaii. Now, if we all went down there and grabbed the Washington Monument, we would see the police within eight or nine minutes and they would haul us off. If a group of indigenous Hawaiians who claim they're a kingdom grab Iolani Palace, lock it out, won't let people take their cars off the ground, won't anybody walk through it, and of course interfere with a whole lot of very valuable tourist traffic, the police sit on the lawn and chat with them, but no one is willing or courageous enough to do anything about it. Um, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, which is the only state agency aside from the University of Hawaii with its own checkbook, has been opening LLCs 
and moving the over $400 million that they have bankrolled into them in order, per the quote from a trustee, to protect them from future litigation. There's so much to go about this. There are, all of this is because there are over 150 federally funded Hawaiian-only programs. And because of the Rice v. Cayetano decision, because Kamehameha Schools paid off this boy $7 million so that there would not be another decision like that, they're afraid that race-based programs may go away. And there's a whole lot of money flowing in, and a whole lot of people making a lot of money off of this, and they want to protect it. It creates a, a special problems. My father-in-law did not see a doctor for over a year. He ended up in the hospital in ICU from various problems because there are very few doctors on Kauai. It's hard to get good medical people out there. And they opened a new Hawaiian-only clinic which paid the doctor significantly more than the state hospital did. So now we don't have sufficient doctors in the state hospital because they're over here caring for the 20% of the population in a Hawaiian-only clinic, which is absolutely redundant in medical terms with everything else that is available on the island. And I truly don't understand why it is that this Filipino-American child or this Japanese-American child, whose families have been there for five generations, isn't entitled to the same social programs as someone simply because of a race-based accident of birth. The, uh, I'm trying to cover a whole lot of this. We mentioned, uh, when Jer mentioned that OHA spends about $2 million lobbying, has spent $2 million lobbying for the Akaka bill. That's about $2 million a year. They have an office in D.C. just to do that. They spend about a similar amount in Hawaii signing people up to vote in the new government of Hawaii. There are four elections in the Akaka bill. Every one of them is solely race-based. You must have Hawaiian blood to vote in these elections. This is so clearly unconstitutional as to be almost laughable. Um, but we have taken the, uh, you know, we've taken this racial exclusion to a ludicrous point. Your tax dollars were at work here last Saturday at the Smithsonian Institution where on Hawaii Day there was significant promotion of the Akaka Bill and the sovereignty movement. The precedence is set, you've heard about Aslan. The uh, fact that there are an awful lot, I think there's 13 Indian tribes petitioning for recognition in uh, in Virginia alone. Now, if you live in Virginia, you want to think about those 13 tribes who have a precedent in the Akaka Bill of getting recognized, and this is going to be attacking your water rights, your bioprospecting rights. Sovereign nations have their own border security, their own, if it can be called border security, their own immigration rules. Sovereign nations present a genuine threat in this way. You know, Elaine glossed over this, but there are Indian tribes that have boasted that they've taken $25,000 payoffs to allow Al-Qaeda members into the United States. We have no protection against this. This is a sovereign nation. It's not only the balkanization of the United States, it's a genuine security threat to the United States. 
Bill, um, you mentioned legal cases. Um, there's two that are happening right now that are kind of entertaining in that um, the Ceded Lands Trust, when the legislature overthrew Queen Lilikalani and formed the Republic of Hawaii, the royal lands, which were the government lands, became the lands of the government of the Republic of Hawaii. When the Republic of Hawaii was annexed, they were ceded to the United States for return upon statehood. Return upon statehood, they were given to the state of Hawaii for five purposes, defense and military bases, uh, the general welfare of all Hawaiian peoples, for public education, for the good of, Hawaii, of indigenous Hawaiians, and there was another reason, oh, for parks and recreation. Since 1978, all of that money has gone solely to the Office of Hawaiian Affairs. The, there's a case now, Kuriiva versus Lingle, which raised six non-ethnic Hawaiians, raising the legitimate question constitutionally of the dispensation of those funds from those lands because they've only been used for ethnic Hawaiians. The state is opposing this, saying that's ridiculous. However, the state just filed a petition for a writ of cert for the Supreme Court because they're unable to sell any of their ceded lands because the apology resolution, which Jerry referred to, requires a uh, a agreement between indigenous Hawaiians and the U.S. government and the state Supreme Court says you can't sell any land until that takes place. So now the state, which denies the Kuriiva case because that's not the status of ceded lands, is claiming that, of course, ceded lands are for all the people of Hawaii. We specialize in very bizarre thinking in Hawaii in some ways. All of these problems, and I'm sorry, I'm just running through a whole lot of things because there's a whole lot to cover. Hawaii voted overwhelmingly for statehood in 1959. Native Hawaiians voted overwhelmingly for statehood in 1959. The, at that time, because Alaska was coming into the Union about the same time and the Aleuts and the Inuits situation was being addressed within the statehood entry uh, procedure and lands and money was being set aside, Hawaiians were asked if they wanted that Alaskan option and overwhelmingly turned it down. Now, 50 years later, we're supposed to go back in the march of history, go back on all of these Hawaiians who voted so dramatically um, in favor of this that apparently no longer counts. I'm going to wrap up really quickly here. I'm going to tell you two things. One, on the back table there, there is a positive alternative to the Akaka bill. There are ways to deal with this without racial separatism, without tearing up the state's economy, without setting horrible legal precedents. I have here, if anybody wants to pick up my card and email me, this I've just gotten, but there's an interesting study out here shows that when you adjust for age and experience, that Native Hawaiians do just about basically as well as anyone else. They are not poor, they are not suffering, and on the mainland they tend to do slightly better than the average. So, important study, sorry for taking so long. Thank you. <laughs>